0: So uh, this morning, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about multiple sclerosis. I'm Clyde Markowitz. I run the MS program at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Uh, these are my disclosures. So in terms of what we're going to discuss today, um, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of background about what is MS and how we make a diagnosis, and ultimately, how we treat it. And what are the most important aspects of how we manage patients with MS? Because it's a coordinated event. You know, MS patients have lots of issues and lots of concerns, so it really takes a combination of like a multidisciplinary team of people who are going to be able to help. So when we think about MS, it's a lifelong disease. It has, you know, variability in terms of patients who get MS and what kind of symptoms they may have. Um, they could have motor involvement, sensory involvement, cognitive issues, bladder issues, everything on this chart here that you can see, including the large majority of these patients over time, over their lifetime, will become disabled. And it's usually disability on the basis of motor dysfunction, but they can have uh, unemployment issues, the cognitive complaints, um, getting divorced. I mean, so there are a number of issues that come up for the population of patients with MS. So if we look at the kind of the demographics of MS, about 400, maybe it's even close to 450,000 patients in the U.S. are diagnosed, maybe 2.5 million worldwide. And most people are diagnosed somewhere between the ages of 15 and 20, but we do have cases of pediatric MS. We have a children's hospital in Philadelphia, and we see kids being diagnosed as you know, young as 3 or 6, uh, very rarely but occasionally. But you do see some kids being diagnosed 10, 11, 12, not uncommonly, but only makes up 2% of the total MS cases. And then we're, we're also seeing people now being diagnosed after the age of 50. Where previously, you would have said, if you made it to 50, you didn't have to worry about MS. But that is no longer the case. We're seeing people, I've diagnosed some people in the recent past in their 60s and 70s as well. Now, granted, they may have gone through life asymptomatic, or maybe they denied that the symptoms they were having were actually MS symptoms, but ultimately, we've made a diagnosis. Now, it's extremely variable. So, you know, uh, one patient says, my friend has MS. How come you know they can walk and they're having no problem and I can't? Right? It's very variable. And rarely do you get into the world of benign MS, but a very small percentage of patients will go through life with a very mild course. And then a small percentage of patients will have a very aggressive malignant course. So that's two ends of the spectrum, but most people fill into the middle of that. There seems to be a female-to-male predominance, about a three-to-one ratio, and more commonly affecting whites, but we see it now affecting significant amounts of African-Americans and Asians, and as the planet moves around, we're starting to really see a lot more of uh, Africans coming to the United States, Indians from India. Uh, So we're seeing a lot more MS um, as we migrate across the planet. There's always been a question about whether or not MS will... Uh, shorten your lifespan. And for years we said yes, then we said no, and now we're saying maybe a little bit yes. And what we're seeing is probably a reduction in life scan by somewhere around six to 10 years. And a lot of times it's due to complications of immobility. We've gotten better at dealing with the complications of immobility in terms of, um, you know, when patients develop bed sores or pulmonary. Um, infections or bladder infections we now can manage those a little bit better but we still think that there is some element of that that can be um, MS specific and when we talk about MS we used to put them into all these different categories of relapsing remitting secondary progressive primary progressive progressive relapsing all this stuff and now we have some more simple terminology but we put them into two major categories a relapsing category or progressive category, all right? And when you look at the tissue of patients who died of MS and you look at the pathology, what you can see are these areas of uh, inflammatory cells. There's areas of what's called gliosis um, or sclerosis. And that usually implies, when you look at that area, there's been inflammation there at some point, uh, edema, But what ultimately happens is you get demyelination in that area and you also get axonal injury and axonal transections. And the axonal transections is what's responsible for the irreversible aspects of neurologic dysfunction. The body does try to remyelinate to some degree and it can to a mild degree but not particularly effectively. So when somebody recovers from an attack or a relapse, they're more commonly not recovering because there's been a remyelination that's occurred, it's usually because whatever swelling that was going on in that area kind of quiets down and then the conduction's restored. Additionally, there are other areas of the brain that can take over for lost function that can actually be very important in in rehabilitation. So on the genetic side of things, positive family history is seen maybe not even 20%, but close to that. What we say is that the risk of developing MS is about one in 750 in the United States. And there is a little bit of a gradient in North America where as you go away from the equator, the risk goes up. And in Canada, it might be you know, one in 500. Down in uh, Miami, it might be you know, one in 1,000. So there is a gradient across the planet, which is just an interesting observation. We see this um, also when you look at twin studies that the risk of an identical twin to develop MS is close to 30%, whereas a fraternal twin is probably closer to a brother or sister, which is about a 2 to 3% risk. So it's an interesting observation. So we know there's a genetic piece to that, and there have been a whole bunch of genes that have been associated, potentially um, some that seem to be across all autoimmune conditions, but some that may have some specificity to MS. So other factors that seem to play roles in the risk of developing MS seems to be vitamin D exposure. So if you have low vitamin D levels, your risk seems to go up significantly. So we tell parents um, that if they have, you know, if the parent has MS and you know they're concerned about their children, we recommend that those those patients' kids take supplementation of vitamin D. And you can usually get adequate amounts of vitamin D with a multivitamin for children. But we actually tell them to take about 1,000 units a day regardless. And then patients themselves, we're trying to address the question of whether vitamin D might be an important factor in the disease progression itself for the individual with MS. And we've done some studies that have correlated low vitamin D levels with higher disease activity So we're recommending all patients take a couple thousand units of vitamin D and trying to get their vitamin D levels within the normal range because you you do see a significant number of people with low vitamin D levels across the U.S. So we, again, try and get them to a target range of about 50. It's kind of what we say. Um, Epstein-Barr virus is interesting, too. So there's a very high association with um, a clinical history of having mononucleosis, In uh, teenage years and pretty much all the MS population is positive for EBV pediatric cases a little bit less so but it's an interesting um, observation and we're now just starting a clinical trial looking at strategies to clear vitamin to clear EBV infections from patients with MS we have some uh, new technologies to be able to accomplish that. So I think that it'll be an interesting observation whether we can actually change the course of MS and ultimately prevent it um, if Epstein-Barr virus plays a role. But you know, we think that there, you know, Epstein-Barr virus may be one of the viruses or one of the cofactors involved in this um, risk of developing MS. So it's not particularly, you know, one virus at this point. But it's an interesting observation, and we'll see with time. Other factors that increase risk, smoking. Cigarette smoking has clearly been shown to increase the risk of developing MS and it has also been shown to increase the risk of somebody moving from a relapsing phase of the disease into the progressive phase of the disease. So one of the things you can do for your patients that will have a direct impact in their day-to-day world is getting them to stop smoking. I mean, you're gonna do that anyway for the general population for global health issues. But in particular for MS as well. Now, the issue about um, low UV exposure, you know, this may play a role into the vitamin D conversation that we were talking about, um, where if you don't have enough ultraviolet exposure, your vitamin D levels may be low because you can't convert them adequately. Um, the birth month conversation kind of goes into that as well. So we're not exactly sure how best to manage that. We say, let's just make sure we have good vitamin D levels, but we don't know if that's the whole story. At least it's part of the story. Other things that increase risk include immune factors. And here, in this conversation, we don't know the specifics about which immune uh, cells, which immune um, suppression systems are inadequately um, being managed in the disease, but we do know that when you affect the immune system by treatments that have very specific effects on very specific populations of immune cells or on cytokines, there's a tremendous benefit. So we know that this is a treatment strategy, and this is what we've done over the last 20 some odd years, but in terms of um, trying to figure out is there a specific population of immune cells that are more active or not being adequately suppressed in MS, there, are, there is data to help support that. I mean, we know that B cells, T cells, monocytes, all of these populations of immune cells are involved in this inflammatory event. And we're trying to figure out how best to uh, target Populations that are going to be more specific to MS, but reduce the risk of uh, immunosuppression. All right, um, and when you when you look at brain pathology, you can actually see that it's not just the immune cells, but there are factors within the brain itself that are presenting antigen to the immune cells, that are contributing microglia, astrocytes, oligodendrocytes they're all involved in the conversation. How much of it is a bystander effect where the immune cells are just coming in and are causing damage versus that the, uh, the neuronal cells or the oligodendrocytes are involved in bringing them in somehow by you know, signaling to the system that they're sick or there's something wrong here, or maybe there's a latent virus living inside of them. So this is kind of an ongoing area of research. So when we talk about MS, we break it down into phenotypes. So I told you before, we don't use as much of this categorization so much anymore. But just to give you some sense about this, we used to call people CIS, clinically isolated syndrome. and we still do to some degree. These are people who present with one attack. They come to your office with uh, blurry vision in one eye. Maybe they had an optic neuritis. But you go do a workup, you, you know, look at their brain MRIs, and you do not find any other evidence of any other area within the central nervous system affected. So you say you have clinical isolated syndrome, you cannot make a diagnosis of MS, but we watch them closely. But there are times that you get a patient who comes into your office with headaches or had head trauma or something like that, and they got an MRI scan of the brain, and the brain report that you get back says something to the effect of there were, you know, periventricular white matter lesions in the brain. In a uh, clinical picture, this would be consistent with uh, demyelination or possibly multiple sclerosis. But the patient has had no complaints whatsoever. We call these radiologic isolated syndrome. So they've never had a clinical event. They've only had evidence of an MRI scan that looks like MS. Now, the thing about that is that you know most of us sitting in the room, if you did an MRI scan, you might see little spots in the brain. We call those UBOs. They don't mean anything. It's just kind of like life. Um, But there is a specific signature in this radiologic isolated syndrome, where these lesions look characteristic based on shape, size, and location. And we would call that radiologic isolated syndrome. We're not expecting you guys to make that assessment. Hopefully the radiologists are telling you something about that. Maybe one of the neurologists who specialize in MS can look at that scan and say, this looks classic for MS. So when you really look at the bona fide relapsing MS population, so after they've had their second event, and that second event could either be a clinical event or they had a new lesion on an MRI scan if they were in the clinically isolated syndrome category. They then had another follow-up scan in three months, six months, whatever, and there was a new lesion there. That can diagnose somebody with MS at this point. So that's the relapsing population. And then about, if you really break it out, about 85% of the MS population presents with a relapsing phenotype. 15% present with a progressive at onset phenotype so these patients never have had a relapse they don't even know what that word means all they know is that they've been getting slowly weaker or slowly losing some function over time but they've never had an event they just say you know it was a hot day I noticed my leg was dragging and then it got worse over the next you know, two years or something like that that sounds more like a progressive phenotype whereas the relapsing is it's an acute onset over a couple of days and usually stabilizes and and gets better. So the relapsing phenotype can move into a progressive phenotype, and if it does, we call that secondary progressive MS, and it's secondary to having a relapsing phenotype, whereas the primary progressive means they never had an attack. So just terminology. And then to add to that complexity in the terminology, we discuss things called whether they're active or not. And active can imply that they have had a clinical attack or they've had new lesions on their brain MRI scan. All right. Either of those. So somebody's on treatment. And you're seeing them in follow-up and you're determining is this somebody who's adequately managed on their treatment. You do an MRI scan, you see a new lesion or two lesions in their brain, you'd say they were active. And maybe you need to consider whether a a change in therapy would be uh, advised at that point. And then the progressing or not we use primarily for the patients who are in the progressive phenotype. And they're either progressing, getting worse despite whatever we're doing for them, or they're stable. All right, So that's just terminology we use. When we talk about the progressive phenotype, we talk about it as almost a a separate entity, but I'm gonna tell you I'm not convinced it's a separate entity. I think it is actually a continuum. And the primary progressive people are the ones who we'd say are distinct from the relapsing population. But even that I'm gonna question as to whether that's a true statement. Regardless, when you see these people clinically The progressive population, the primary progressive patients, they typically present at a later age. So where the relapsing population presents usually in their 30s and 40s, sometimes in their 20s, the progressive population usually present to the physicians usually in their 40s and 50s. So that's a different age population. And again, there's a whole variety of things here that may be contributors as to why that is. And some of that is that, you know, you may have um, more reserve in your brain where somebody, let's say, has had silent lesions in their brain at various time points and it never manifested clinically, and now at some point you get a lesion in your spinal cord and now it's slowly, progressively getting worse. We see this. So it may be more of a real estate issue than anything else. So how do we make a diagnosis? So it's a clinical diagnosis at this point. So the MRI alone cannot make a diagnosis. You need to have had at least one event or at least a progression. So clinical findings, then you rule out other things with blood work and that can include things like lupus and Lyme disease and uh, Sjogren's and a whole bunch of other things that can mimic MS. But the most sensitive and useful test that we do is MRI scans, particularly of the brain, but you should also consider doing the spinal cord as well. And we used to say you needed to have spinal fluid to make a diagnosis of MS, and then we kind of backed down after the MRIs looked so good, and we said you don't need to do that, and then we kind of moved it back again where we now are including it, but are not required. So a spinal fluid, if you can demonstrate some ob- abnormalities of algoclonal bands, Um, or elevated IgG synthesis in the spinal fluid that's consistent with MS. All right, and I told you what happens in the um, world of making a diagnosis of MS, that you need to have had two attacks separating space and time. The first event is called CIS, but if they have another event, you can call it MS. Well, we kind of historically went down the pathway of another event requiring it to be a clinical event. So you have two events separated in space and two different areas of the central nervous system. Then when MRIs came along, you said you could use the MRI scan for another event. And we said it had to be three months after the initial presentation. If there was a new lesion on their scan, you could call it MS. And we kept moving it back farther and farther, asking the question, can you make a diagnosis after one MRI and one attack? So somebody presented, let's say, with you know, blurry vision in one eye, and you called it an optic neuritis, you did a brain MRI scan, and you saw that there were a bunch of brain lesions. But in addition, there were some active lesions in the brain that were not causing any symptoms, and inactive lesions in the brain that were older. And at that point now, you can call this MS. On a single MRI scan with active and inactive lesions on the scan. All right, I'm not going to bore you with our details for the progressive population, but let's move into the therapeutic arena. So, when we talk about um, treating patients with MS, we take it as a whole, right? So, this is going to be treatment with medication, treatment with um, non pharmacologic treatments, but we also have a strategy of preventative treatments such as wellness approaches, health maintenance, reducing their vascular risk factors, making sure you a know, variety of things are being managed. So we look at their wellness, we look at their clinical attack um, and relapse therapy, we look at symptomatic therapies for people who have maybe you know, some residual neurologic dysfunction, we might recommend PT, we might recommend some antispasticity drugs or bladder drugs, things like that. So on the wellness side of things, you know, our approach these days is, let's do everything we can to prevent them from moving into the progressive phase of the disease. Because once they move into the progressive phase, we have very little to do that we can alter their disease course. Everything right now looks like it's best if you do it early. So making sure they have adequate vitamin D, making sure they're on a regular exercise regimen, Um, making sure um, they are not smoking. Issues related to alcohol and salt, it's not completely clear. At least there's some studies in animals that have shown that a high-salt diet is pro-inflammatory, which would be particularly bad for somebody with an autoimmune condition. So we do recommend a low-salt diet, but that one's not driven so well in um, patient data. Um, the limited alcohol, again, that's really not clear. Uh, I'm not going to weigh in about that. But other things are making sure they have you know, adequate sleep, um, reducing their stress. And then the world of comorbidities, such as blood pressure, diabetes, these are particularly important in, in the treatment of MS because we know that people who have ongoing issues with uh, blood sugars out of control or hypertension, it seems to be making their brain Uh, Disease worse. So, we recommend highly to deal with all those issues. All right, so when we're thinking about now pharmacologic therapies for MS, we're looking at the patient, you know, there's a lifelong treatment. You're going to have this disease, you know, forever, maybe. um, And we have to kind of manage it. So, we have to look at how to decide which treatment. And we believe that shared decision making is probably the best approach. You know, historically we'd say, well, I'm the doctor, I know, you don't know, so listen to me. But that doesn't seem to be the best approach because patients will come into that conversation and say, you know what, I feel horrible on this drug. I don't want to go back to the doctor and tell him I can't take this drug because it's making me feel bad. So you need to have a conversation. And as we've evolved over the last 20 years, some of the medications that we use are risky, they have side effects that are concerning, some of which can actually be quite significant with brain infections that could lead to death or other autoimmune conditions, uh, you know, liver toxicity, you know, bone marrow suppression. So there's a whole host of stuff that we have to deal with, and we have to have a conversation with a patient and say, this is what we think you need to be on and why. And here are the reasons as to the why conversation there. So when we're in that conversation, we have to make a determination about who is at greatest risk for the worst outcome. And there are some things we can do to kind of factor those in when we're making those initial decisions. But additional to all of this conversation is the idea that we would like to keep some attention to cost. Now I can be honest and tell you that the cost of drugs for MS has skyrocketed, in my opinion, for no good reason. so there is a piece to this conversation, but you know, right now all the drugs are really expensive. We'd love them all to be coming down in price globally, and you know, I'm not sure exactly how we're gonna manage that piece of it, but there's lots of efforts to address that. So when we think about starting somebody, you wanna start them as early as possible, right? Because we know from every study we've done to date that if you delay the treatment in terms of years, you can not recover lost time, so we got to be active in, in, you know, making sure we're dealing with getting people on treatment as early as possible. That's our biggest window into preventing things from getting worse. And like I said, we're going to do the uh, assessment of who we think needs to be at greatest risk, get the patient buy-in, and then we monitor them pretty closely. You know, we may be reevaluating, re-evaluating them every three months at least initially. And then maybe every six months for the most part. And occasionally you get some people who are really stable you could do once a year. But, I mean, in our world, as MS specialists, we're seeing these people fairly frequently because we think it's important to keep track of what's happening with them and make sure we make adjustments as we go. So this slide kind of goes over some of the prognostic factors, the ones I'll highlight that are particularly important here. So we know that African Americans seem to have a worse outcome. And we don't know exactly why that is. We believe there are genes that drive that conversation. We also know that the younger they are, they have a better course than if they're older at onset, more of a progressive population. Males seem to do worse than females. And, you know, people who smoke, particularly bad. But the other ones that are particularly important here are ones who present with either a motor or cerebellar onset, Or people who um, you do an MRI scan and you see they've had a lot of clinically silent disease. And that clinically silent disease can either be in the form of lesions that you see or in terms of brain atrophy. If there's spinal cord involvement, those are poor outcomes. So these are the ones that we look at and we say, okay, so this person's in a bad uh, prognostic category. We have to be much more aggressive up front versus, you know, a 28-year-old with a single optic neuritis and two little spots in the brain, you could say we're going to put them on something that's, you know, safe, that isn't going to be too much of a problem in that regard. Although, that being said, we are starting a conversation about whether we should be even more aggressive up front for that population of, pe- of patients who we labeled as not concerning and maybe really alter the course of their life um, with something that is strong up front, and then you can dial it back a little bit. So when we talk about you know factoring all these things in, we have to take the patient's concerns, we have to take their disease phenotype concerns, and then you know what are the drug side effect issues that we have to factor in here. So we're taking all this into consideration while we're making these determinations. So now we'll talk specifically. I'm not going to go into huge detail about these drugs, but I want to give you kind of a, a flavor and an overview. So... We started out with the idea that we would have injectable drugs, so we had interferons as the first drug available back in 1993, and now we have four different preparations in different forms. Some are subcutaneous, some are intramuscular. Um, they have varying frequency issues. I'm not going to bore you with details about it. Um, Gluterium acetate, another injectable drug that came out, now comes in a couple of different preparations, including... Um, a 20 milligram dosing and a 40 milligram dosing and now there are two generics out as well Um, so all of these are really, you know, the patients go home and they learn how to do self-injections that's really what it comes down to not a huge issue, the interferons have a a little bit of some flu-like symptoms associated with it but pretty safe overall Uh, the glutirimer, again, injection site issues but no flu symptoms so advantages They're safe. We've been using these drugs for over 20 years. No major issues have come up. There's the occasional elevation of a liver test with an interferon. But for the most part, you're not looking at any major issues here, all right? Very safe. Um, In terms of its efficacy, we'd say it's on the good side of things, you know, maybe reducing the attack rates by about 30% across the board. Main side effects are injection site issues which patients find annoying, um, and the flu-like symptoms. So not a huge, um, I mean, 20 years in, not everybody's so excited about these drugs anymore, but they still work, so we use them. One thing that's of somewhat of an issue is that we've looked at adherence to treatments, and with interferons and glutirimer, adherence is problematic. People either forget to take their medication or they don't want the flu-like symptoms on interferon, So, you know, compliance can be a bit of an issue. Um, In 2010, our first oral drug became available, called fingolimod, and um, it showed better efficacy than the injectable drugs. There was at least one head-to-head trial with that one. So um, very, very nice, but there are a number of issues and side effects and monitoring concerns that need to go into this conversation. First dose has to be monitored in the doctor's office for six hours. Can you, you can get some uh, first-dose bradycardia, but after that first six hours, people are fine. Um, there's some ophthalmologic issues with macular edema. You have to screen them and make sure they're adequately immunized for, um, for herpes virus, particularly in, in regards to varicella. Uh, there have been now, I should change this, it's actually 19 cases of PML. Um, PML being progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is a rare brain infection, usually seen in patients with HIV/AIDS, um, under certain chemotherapy regimens. Um, so it's not a common thing, but here's a drug that actually can cause this problem. Um, there have been some Cryptococcus cases. So you know, as I told you, with the injectable drugs, you're looking at safe. Now we're into not as safe. I use this drug primarily in patients who are young, healthy, without any issues. Um, There are some concerns about the macular edema side effect in patients who have diabetes. So, you know, these are some of the concerns that we have. Um, We don't expect you guys to be worrying about all these concerns. We are kind of, you know, in in the world of taking care of MS, so we're dealing with it, trying to make the right, appropriate treatment. Another oral drug, teraflutamide, uh, came out, which is very similar to arava, which is used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so this drug does not have all that issue of side effect, but has other issues. It has some issues related to hair thinning. Um, liver function test abnormality have to be monitored every month for the first six months. There's issues related to TB that you gotta make sure that they don't have a history of any active TB prior to starting and the issue of pregnancy has been problematic with this one because it has been shown at least in animal studies to be a teratogen so we don't want to necessarily have patients go you know on this medication if they're thinking on planning a, a family one of the things you can do with this drug though is this drug can be washed out of the system with a 10-day course of cholestyramine or activated charcoal so if somebody does get pregnant you can actually get rid of the drug fairly quickly. Um, Or if somebody's planning on getting pregnant, you can get it out before you start trying. And the third oral agent that became available, dimethylfumarate, um, which is administered twice a day. The other two that I talked about were administered once a day. Um, This one doesn't seem to have as much of a safety concern. We thought it would be one of the safest of our oral agents. There have been five cases of PML seen with this one. Um, and it seems to be that the risk is of low lymphocyte counts on this drug may increase the risk to develop PML. So we monitor people every three months with blood tests to make sure they're okay. All right, so we're going to move on to the um, intravenous treatments. So natalizumab became available in 2004. It was pulled off the market in three months later in 2005 because they went and found a couple of cases of PML and then came back on the market in 2006, and it's been on the market now uh, for 12 years. And there are up to close to 800 cases of PML with this medication. This is by far one of the best drugs that we have from an efficacy standpoint. It shuts down disease activity quite significantly. You know, somewhere in the 60 to 70% reduction in relapses and. reduction on MRI lesions, so very effective, but carries this risk of PML. And in the world that we practice in these days, we don't want to give anybody PML. We use this drug when we feel like we have to, but there's been an assay developed where you can actually check to see if they have been exposed to the virus that causes PML, called the JC virus, and if they have a blood test that is negative, you're low risk. If the test is positive and your titer is low, you're at a higher risk, but not a high risk. And if your titer is high, we'd say you probably shouldn't be on this treatment. Um, but otherwise, it's administered every month intravenously, pretty well tolerated for the most part. Then alemtuzumab became available. Uh, this drug is administered on a yearly basis, which is kind of convenient, but carries some issues. And the main issues are autoimmune phenomenology that can occur later, right? So you're doing this treatment, and it's like five days the first year, and then after a year, you do another three days, and then you really don't need to do any more treatments. And these patients do great, but a small percent will go on to develop secondary autoimmunity. And when I say that is, actually, for thyroid autoimmunity, you see as high as 30 to 40% of patients will develop that kind of autoimmunity autoimmune Hashimoto's, autoimmune Graves' disease, etc. So you have to screen for that with blood tests. They can develop ITP, so another, but a much lower percent, only a couple of percent. And then there's also good pastures that has been seen and a couple of other autoimmune conditions. So these are issues that are interesting. So because of that, if we're going to use this drug, your patients have to have blood and urine tested every month for four years after their last treatment. So it's a little bit of a challenge, but the company's pretty good about getting a team of people out to the patient's home or to their workplace to get that data. But it does give us a little bit of some issues. And then this drug is the most recently approved intravenous medication, ocrelizumab, which many of you are familiar with, uh, rituximab, which has been used for years to treat a variety of conditions, both autoimmunity and cancer, et cetera. Um, so, this is the next generation of rituximab. It uh, knocks out B cells, the CD20, uh, it's an anti CD20 molecule. They did some very nice trials. And what's interesting about this one is that it is the first approved drug for primary progressive MS patients. Everything I've talked about to date is all approved for the relapsing population. All right? It's all been shown to be beneficial there. They've done studies with those other drugs in primary progressive MS or secondary progressive MS, and it's either not been um, positive tests or didn't reach enough of their um, primary endpoint that they'd get an approval. But this one was. all right. So this is the first drug that we have available that actually affects the progressive phase of the disease. So we're excited about that. There's some ongoing trials looking at it in secondary progressive MS as well. So we'll see how things evolve in that conversation. I won't bore you with the details about this, but I will tell you a little bit about some of the drugs that are currently in development, which include um, monomethyl fumarate, which is just like one of the other, the dimethyl fumarate, the oral drug that was twice-a-day regimen. This is um, a... Another drug that may have a slightly different approach, but similar, cladribine. So this drug is currently in development. It is approved in several countries around the planet, um, and it's currently at the FDA with the hope to get an approval sometime in the near future. But this is a short course, um, about 20 days of pills over the course of two years. So it's the short few days here, a couple months later, a few days here, and you just kind of do this on a periodic basis. Um, but the data, we actually hoped that cladribine would have been the first oral available drug when it was being tested. And the submission to the FDA uh, at the time that this was going to be going on, there was some concern about maybe an increased risk for certain malignancies. Interestingly enough, um, that did not really pan out, but the uh, resubmission demonstrates that it looks pretty safe overall. Ibutalast is uh, a phase 2 trial. looked fairly exciting. It's going into phase 3 at this point. Mastanib for progressive MS as well. And then in the fingolimod conversation that I talked about that has all the cardiac monitoring and all the uh, ophthalmologic monitoring, there are three other agents that are currently in development that have all targeted the same receptor but are more specific and may have less side effects. Um, So that's all ongoing work. All right. So just in the last few minutes, I'm going to go through some of the generics. And, you know, the only drug that we currently have that is a generic out there is for the glitimer acetate. And that's currently... It's an interesting world because we don't have data for the generics that are approved in the United States for the glatiramer acetate. We have no data that this drug is effective in MS. All we have is that the FDA said you can, you know, go ahead and market your drug. Um, it was based on some in vitro studies. Um, I'm not comfortable personally with in vitro studies. I would really like to see uh, humans taking this medication. The European Union, who does an analysis of generics, said you need to do a clinical trial with this drug. So they made the companies do clinical trials, and they had a generic drug that looked very good, and in a head-to-head clinical trial with MRI outcomes and clinical outcomes showed fairly good equivalency. But interestingly enough, that drug is not available in the United States. All right? But we have these two others that are with no data. So I'm kind of a little bugged by that, personally. Um, and they're not that much cheaper, interestingly enough. Um, so that's just what I have to say. We'll talk a few minutes on adherence. So adherence is a big issue across the board for all of medicine, um, but we know that there is clearly um, things that drive the conversation for patients who don't adhere, and some of it is that they either can't tolerate the side effects or maybe there's a perceived lack of efficacy where somebody's having more symptoms and they may be attributing it to the drug itself and it may be just the disease course. Um, Depression plays a a large role into this conversation. So these are all pieces that we have to address. And we know that when you look at the population and say, you know, these drugs have a good effect on relapse rate reduction between 30 and 80% or, you know, uh, disability reduction. Uh, the problem is, is that if you take a population of untreated patients, they're going to relapse about every six months. If you treat them, they relapse maybe every two to five years, and in some cases it's even less frequent than that. We may have disease suppression that's quite significant, where maybe they get an attack every 10 years, if so. So, you know, important piece to the conversation about understanding what the benefits are and getting people to understand and adhere to the regimen. They've done studies looking at, you know, if you took a population of patients who were adherent, taking all their medication all the time versus not taking it consistently, and they've done studies that showed that the risk was probably twofold, you know, twice the the likelihood that they're going to have relapses if they just took their medication or, you know, twice likely that they wouldn't have a relapse um, if they took their medication as prescribed. So it's a, it's a big deal. We need to kind of deal with that. So when you think about why people don't take it, it there's a whole list. In the world of injections, a lot of times because they forgot to take it, um, but it's a lot more than that. you know. And as you get into the world of side effects with some of these other medications, some of gastrointestinal side effects also, We have to manage those issues. So, and here's why it's particularly important. You know, your patient comes in, and you said you know you had an MRI scan, and you had some new lesions on your scan. I'm going to increase the risk of the drug I'm going to put you on. Right, so I have to go to a stronger drug, and the stronger drug carries a different risk profile. And maybe if we did not, if we did not adequately assess their adherence to the treatment, and we inappropriately escalated their risk, we may be doing potential harm. So it's particularly important for us to make those determinations. So when you look at the strategies for getting people to adhere, you're looking at, you know, who can touch this patient, right? So physicians, pharmacists, the nurses, the case managers, everybody who touches this patient can be instrumental in getting people to adhere to the regimens. And so when you look at a, you know, a patient with MS, there's going to be so many people that are involved in the care. So, you know, how do we deal with this? <clears throat> we have to make sure patients understand what the importance of treatment is and what the benefit of taking medication is. How it's going to slow down the rate of their disease. Um, and, you know, find out what their concerns are dealing with some of these issues related to maybe they're depressed and they don't want to take medication or whatever, you know, you really have to look at this and develop that bond and that plan together to, to tackle this. One thing we address is when in the course of treatment is the drug working? So you start the treatment, treatment becomes effective at a certain time point, we'll say six months. What happens if they had an attack before that drug was fully active? Do you, make a, <clears throat> do you make a change in therapy at that point? Not yet. We say, wait, get a new scan, new MRI scan on them at six months or maybe even three months in some settings, because that's going to set a new baseline for you to compare over time, and that'll tell you whether or not this drug is effective in the long run. Any events that occur after the time points that you said this drug was effective is actionable and we talk actionable we talk about relapses we talk about progression we talk about mri changes so if everybody's good with you know low levels on these uh, on these odometers or speedometers you're good but if there's any higher concerns where maybe two things maybe you know a bunch of mri lesions and they're progressing that's actionable or even one metric like a very active MRI scan may be enough to make a change in therapy. So we make those determinations. So we've come up with a notion called NIDA, no evidence of disease activity, where they have no relapses, no disability change over time, and that's a scale that we use, and no new MRI activity. And the MRI activity could either be new lesions or new active lesions. So that's kind of what we do. When we looked at some of these... Drug trials that we've done with some of these medications, you can see that we're not really doing a tremendous job with hitting NEDA on any of these drugs. Where you know the most effective drugs of Ocrelizumab being a forty-eight redu- percent, you know, forty-eight percent of the patients hitting NEDA. Um, we still have a lot more room to go in this conversation, but in any event, we are we are working on it. All right. So when we think about you know, treating somebody, we try and personalize the therapy. You consider the disease, the drug, the patient factors, develop a partnership with the patient, and you know, follow them closely, and make sure that you know, any time you think you need to change, you change. So what can we do as a group? You know, coordinating specialist care. So ideally for you guys, if you can identify people in your community who are neurologists, preferably MS specialists, working together with them and getting as much uh, feedback back and give them as much information because you may be the people who are seeing them on a more regular basis than the neurologists are. So making sure that those relationships are cultivated adequately and co-managed together with the you know, testing, the blood testing, the follow-up care. Um, and things that you know, are particularly important that you guys will be dealing with are, you know, does the patient's insurance cover the medications? Or you know, uh, does the patient's insurance uh, cover the, the specialist who they're going to go see? And make sure you have a checklist that you go through. And this is basically you know, things like, can they get to the doctor's office? Do they need, you know, special transportation? You know, maybe they need a uh, a van or, a, a you know, a, in some cases, not commonly, but, you know, a stretcher or something like that to get in. And does the patient have, you know, adequate support at home? You know, are there people in the house who are smoking? You know, coordinating with well, all of that. And then the whole issues of financial um, management. So on my last slide, just I want to... Finish with saying that, you know, clearly we have learned a lot about the disease over the recent years. We have many treatments these days, we're up to like 18, or 19 different treatments, which are tremendous. It doesn't really hit yet at the progressive phase of this disease and we clearly are not repairing anybody yet, but that's the next decade or two for us. Um, but we have to manage these people proactively looking to make sure we have adequate coordination of their care managing the side effects of medications, maximizing their adherence, um, and as we move forward, some of these new agents, um, we are hoping to be more effective, safer, and maybe even repairing. Okay, well, thank you. I'm happy to answer any additional questions.
1: Okay, so you freaked me out a little bit. I have a 21-year-old who had mono um, as a teenager and um, also doesn't live anywhere near the equator so I'm just curious as to um, you know what the correlations are and what the alignments are, and if there's anything I should be worried about or looking for.
0: Right. So. Um,
1: and and the, I never heard that they nobody when he had mono ever said there was risk for anything in the future. Of
0: course. Right. Because so many people develop mono, and not so many people develop MS. It's a very low risk. But interestingly enough, if you take the MS population, they've all had. EBV exposure, and a large number have had clinical mono. That's the observation. To give you the risk conversation for that, I can't. All right, because we don't have the denominator of how many people have mono clinically. Um, but what I would tell you is, is that if she develops any neurologic complaints, that it should be you know evaluated just like anything else.
1: So I heard you make a couple comments that sounded hopeful Hopeful. um, in in passing around both either the stalling and or potentially someday a cure. So it sounds like through therapies, aggressive and early, that there is um, changing ability to influence the progression and or stall uh, the disease. And it sounded like there was some hope. So could you talk a little bit about your thoughts around uh, potential cure and or? Sure. Permanent stall? Yeah.
0: So we have done a great job over the last 20 years of knocking down the inflammatory process that's causing a lot of the uh, damage to the brain and and spinal cord. We become really good. The questions that we have to address is, um, as we get stronger and stronger at doing that, are we... Are we able to do that safer? And I will tell you that there's been some very exciting work going on in the arena of stem cell research. And I didn't really talk about that at all, but I'll tell you that the, the preliminary work with stem cells where you're basically ablating the immune system and then repopulating it with a new immune system um, looks promising and even to the point where people are very stable and don't have any further clinical events. The problem is you can't repair what's been damaged already. Um, but the problem with that stem cell work currently is that it's not safe enough to do because the drugs that you are using to wipe out the immune system are not trivial. And people have died and people develop all sorts of potential issues there, including autoimmune conditions additionally. so. I think that that's an evolving field, and we are, we're on the cutting edge of that conversation right now with a whole variety of approaches to, to deal with that. And then in the terms of where I think the remyelination, neuroprotection conversation is, is that right now we're probably a good 10 years before we get to a point where we can say we have maybe something. I mean, there's some early work going on that shows some promise. With some remyelinating uh, compounds, it's it's way too early to really give you a piece to that. And the conversation of a cure, I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime. It would be nice, but I don't know. Um, as we learn more about things like um, the genetic, you know, predispositions, and maybe you know, really identifying populations of genes that contribute to progression of the disease you know, development of the disease, we might potentially be able to impact that. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, the work that we have done over the last 20 years in MS has started to show up in other neurologic conditions where some of the medications can actually be used for other uh, potentials and even across different disease states, you know, not even neurology necessarily, but other autoimmune or other conditions. So, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yes, sir. Um, I had had two questions. One is in the context of clinical, the other one is in the context of PCMA, so I'll ask the first one and then give you a chance to answer that one. Um, For, I think, Yep. um, do you test, I think I I saw in there you mentioned uh, those folks have a high risk for um, cryptococcus and herpes, do you test for those people uh, those yeah. diseases
0: before you administer that drug or do you? For VZV yes. So we are making sure that people have adequate immunity to chickenpox. so they get their blood done before they start the drug and if they are not adequately immune we immunize them. So that's a yes. Cryptococcus is a very low risk There haven't been that many cases. So we don't test it routinely at this point because, you know, I'm not sure that I would say just because you had a blood test means you're going to develop it. It's also not as bad of a condition, like it's manageable to some degree. Um, So at this point, we don't, and I don't think we'll change that point of view.
1: Then my my second question is related to you know, cost. I mean, especially in the context of PCMH, value-based care, and all those things that we're talking about, um, they're they're expensive. They're ridiculous. Uh, and is there like a way to like mitigate some of that cost because of you know that that expense?
0: Well, um, other, other programs, I guess, is what I'm
1: asking. Yeah. You. Well,
0: I can tell you this that. Um, there are programs, patient assistance programs, that are out there to help patients' side of that conversation, where if, let's say, the insurance company says, you know, you've got to pay 20% copay or something like that, they, the pharmaceutical companies have programs in place to be able to provide assistance for some of those patients, at least for the most part. Um, I have no Good feel for how we're going to bring down the cost. You know, you would have thought that generics would help, and that has not happened. It just has not happened. And you know, maybe with the next round of generics, which are pills, fingolimod might become a generic in the near future. Um, that one potentially we will have a greater buy-in from neurologists because if you can demonstrate... I mean, that's a very specific drug with a very specific receptor binding, just like an antihypertensive or something else. So if you can demonstrate in a tissue culture setting that the effect of that drug binding to that receptor is equivalent, my feeling would be, then this should be fine. problem with copaxone is that there isn't a receptor. It's an entirely, it shouldn't even be in the category of, um, you know, what it is. It should be a biologic that has a whole different way of thinking about it, but it's not. So we're stuck with what we got. I'm hoping that the next big drug that comes to market brings the price down. (coughs) Haven't seen it yet. All right, well, thank you all. Enjoy the rest of your day.